0: You are listening to First in Human, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vial, a tech enabled CRO, hosted by Simon Burns, CEO and co founder. Featuring special guest host Miguel Testa, VP of Engineering. For Season 2, Episode 3, we are joined by Bogdan Kezevic, co founder and CEO of Kaleidoscope.bio. Learn more about the journey of creating innovative software solutions for the complex biotech ecosystem. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this edition of First in Human. Joining me today is one of the most innovative software founders I've seen building these integrative layers onto the very messy biotech ecosystem with a really, really nice product. Really excited. I've spoken to him multiple times before, heard all about the product, saw the product, used a little bit of it, and I cannot be more excited to introduce our guest for today, Bogdan Knezovic. Hello, Bogdan. How are you doing? Hey, Miguel.
1: Doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Where are you calling from? Currently, I'm in Tremblant
1: in Quebec, Canada. I'm actually Canadian. Normally, I'm based in New York, though.
0: Go Canada. Definitely love the Canadian representation, particularly in the biotech ecosystem, Speaking of which, your background is really rich. A lot of science, a lot of business, a lot of everything in between. I saw you did a stint at some really great organizations that fosters entrepreneurship, like Entrepreneur First and CDL, I believe. Tell me how you got around to starting Kaleidoscope. Something that was unpredictable, if you asked me 10 years ago, I don't think
1: I would say that I would necessarily have been in the shoes I am today, but just winding back the clock a bit originally thought I was going to go down a very traditional route of science and undergrad, some kind of research and maybe medical school, and then move into practice, medicine being something that I was always interested in growing up. But I think just through lots of learning along the way, through actually being a researcher for a big portion of my life, through interacting with other people doing interesting things, I realized that I actually felt much more compelled to try and build something that solves a problem that I care about personally, and that that probably wouldn't be down some traditional path of a job that I sequentially climb some ladder for and instead would be building something from scratch. So happy to dig into that story from whatever angle is most interesting here.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned obviously a problem that you care about, which is key to any successful entrepreneurial endeavor. For Kaleidoscope, what was that problem? If I go back to... Probably my time in grad
1: school is when I first started noticing this. So I did, my undergrad was in neuroscience. My graduate degree was genomics and preclinical drug discovery. So my PhD thesis focused on different ways we can bring in multiomic data and use that to inform what targets to go after or what targets to prioritize among a list of potential candidates. And what I found through doing that work was that a huge portion of my time It's hard to actually quantify, but maybe a third to half of my time was not actually spent doing science or thinking through experiments or even planning experiments. It was actually spent trying to figure out the context behind the different moving pieces we had in the lab, in the consortium we were part of, who had done what in the past, why was that work done, where that data sat, these kinds of project or R and D collaboration questions that kept popping up. I started also noticing that we would make really kind of expensive mistakes or assumptions. So I remember at one point we were doing a project that involved collecting some samples and processing them and, and doing some expression analysis on them. And only a few months into that work, did we realize that there was actually a data set with these exact samples in a freezer somewhere and that data was marked in. A spreadsheet on some folder on some drive, but there was no way for me to have known that ahead of time. And, you know, just doing one of these experimental runs can be a hundred to $200,000 to actually do start to finish. And so I kept digging into this a bit more initially just with my colleagues at the time, but then also talking to my co-founders who I'd love to also elaborate on because they're really relevant to the story. But I kept coming back to this question of how often does this happen? Is this common Is this something that is unique to academia or does it happen elsewhere? And quickly, we realized that this is not an academic-only problem. This is not a tiny biotech problem. This is not a big pharma problem. It's really everyone. Everyone we spoke to told us this is a very common issue. We don't always know what work we're doing, where that data is, why we did it. People change teams, people leave companies. And this creates a whole slew of problems, both in terms of efficiency and, and resource in the short term, but then also can quickly balloon to much more complex and expensive mistakes down the line when it comes time to file to go to clinic or do something like that with the data that you've generated.
0: So if I'm hearing this correctly, this is a case of prevention is basically better than a cure, where you're preventing a lot of these organizations from making these costly mistakes by offering them a great suite of solutions in Kaleidoscope. Is that accurate? Yeah, I
1: think that's accurate. I think there's a lot of work that can proactively be done. And that's something that we offer companies. So we try and in this approach of you know, the product revealing its complexity as you need it. One thing that we realized is like scientists want to be doing the science and they don't want to be distracted by software. And so our number one mindset going into it was we need to build product that is incredibly usable, incredibly intuitive and that you just almost forget about. And then as a team needs more complex, sophisticated tooling, then the different functions and features that you have in the product reveal themselves to the users and let them do things in in really interesting and complex ways. So we try and give people utility day-to-day and also proactively solve these problems from happening. If I wind back the clock to when we were starting Kaleidoscope, something that we wanted to make sure we were doing was not just building a tool that we thought needed to exist. That's, of course, important that you believe in your own product. but Also, that we were building things that people told us they wanted to have, and when I think back to all the conversations we had in the early days, a lot of people were telling us like these problems are important enough that we are either desperately looking for tools and kind of switching between different generic enterprise solutions out there because nothing really fits for R and D, but we're trying to make it work, or uh, the more expensive route, which a lot of people are increasingly taking, which is I'm just going to hire or repurpose my own technical employees, uh, software engineers, et cetera, to build our own trackers in-house because we really need to do this well and there isn't anything out there and I just have to build it. And so that when you look at it from a perspective of like what should a biotech be doing, anything that's not core to the IP that you're generating is a distraction. It slows you down. It becomes expensive to maintain over time. And so we saw this as a great opportunity to actually build that tool and, and save people resources from that perspective
0: as well. Amazing. Let's talk about usability because that's one of the big things that I feel makes Kaleidoscope, at least from my personal perspective, really stand out. What inspired the product design? What inspired your prioritization of usability? And how have people responded to this? You know, especially like comparing it to your analog. Um, it is definitely much, much more modern and akin to consumer grade software tools. So can you elaborate more on the, you know that aspect?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it ties back to our deep belief that when it comes to science, software should be a tool that enables people and not one that now requires its own experts whose job it is to wield software. It should be a tool that helps you do the work that you're already doing, just better, faster, more efficiently, easier. We had that assumption from day one, especially in a field like science, where we, again, through talking with people, heard that it's not uncommon for scientists to just default to a worse solution because there's just too much friction and learning a new piece of software. And of course, there's always education, like no new piece of software is going to be immediately usable by everyone on the planet, right out of walks. But it's about setting the bar to be as high as a simple app that you as a consumer might use on your phone and making it that easy to also organize your work when it comes to what you're doing professionally. The second part to this is also like the founding team, which I alluded to earlier. So there's three of us in total. I brought the scientific context and I was someone who struggled with this problem myself. And then my two co-founders, Ahmed, who was an absolutely brilliant software engineer, who's been an engineer everywhere from startups where he was the first end Triers through to companies like Google, including first hired a company that Google actually acquired. And then the other co-founder, David, who is a really brilliant designer by background, designer who moved into product. The fact that the three of us got together to tackle this problem is another reason why we set the bar internally that we do when it comes to usability design, because I think it's one of our superpowers as a team. And I also think that it's something that's severely missing in the space. As you mentioned, Miguel, like most software in the space looks like it was built 20, 30 years ago. Another thing I want to highlight here, it's not just what it aesthetically looks like, it's mm-hmm. also how it works. And mm-hmm. again, when we speak to people about the tools that they're using, they complain to us like, look, science today is a complex collection of workflows. I am no longer doing a very simple thing where I just need to upload a file. I actually need to take five, six, seven, eight actions. And I need to know where those buttons are. I need to know what certain features do or don't do. I need things to be snappy. I need things to work quickly. I can't sit around and wait for you know, an hour on my machine to finish doing something because I have to get back to experiments or I have to get back to a meeting that I'm running with my team. And so we just really wanted to apply the lens of beautifully designed software that gives you those magical experiences where you just don't know how things work, but they do. And I'm really fortunate that my two co-founders have done that. They've built products that have been used by millions of active users each month. And so their bar for what good product is, is quite high.
0: And I'm assuming that this brand new user experience, and again, it stands out, this didn't scare anyone on your end user base, right? You didn't get any people like, what is this? Yeah, no, we're always iterating the product when it comes to like the right
1: way to implement a feature or like a new workflow. But in terms of the feedback we've gotten from people when they see the product, it's almost the opposite. It's almost like, wait, this looks really simple. Mm-hmm. It can track all these things. It just looks like a very easy, clean UI. Um, I love that I don't have to scratch my head to figure out what these buttons mean or do.
0: Absolutely great. So you mentioned a lot about the team, which is obviously core to the existence of your company and your product and your backgrounds of your co-founders absolutely stellar. Again, on top of you being a rock star scientist slash very broad experience yourself. How did you guys get together? How did you guys meet? Sometimes I tell this to people,
1: and they get a little like scared for us because we're actually friends from high school. Ahmed and I are, and then David and Ahmed were colleagues right out of college. And so, why I say people get scared is because often the question is like, "Oh, can you work well with friends?" And I think the answer for us is a resounding yes. I think not only have we been friends for a long time, but we've worked together in professional contexts. And I think a big reason that startups are hard is because a lot of things come down to trust, um, and a lot of things come down to Who owns what and who delivers on why. And there's just a supreme amount of trust between us. And it's very easy for us to understand like, okay, Ahmed tackles all things tech. David tackles all things product and design and Bogdan make sure that David and Ahmed could do their job well and does everything else. So yeah, it's uh, friends first and then colleagues and then now
0: co-founders. That's great. Trust being such an integral part of the internal team sounds like, again, this whole thing is founded on very rock solid foundations. That being said, obviously, with a trust being uh, a key word, tell me more about how the industry has taken to basically you guys, particularly in the early days, you know, introducing this new tool, this new team, new paradigm, new way of thinking about things. And right now you guys are already doing spectacular things in the industry, making waves. But tell me more about the early days. It
1: still feels early days to us, even though eight months ago, we are just the three of us. Now we are like a full product eng team. We went from working primarily with design partners to now supporting paying customers on the platform, using us to actually kind of power the work that they're doing. So that's been pretty spectacular. It's always a challenge because we always want to make sure that we're working with the right early group of customers. We meet everyone's bar when it comes to, are we doing exciting, impactful work? But the reality is that not every company is in a position where they can adopt a new tool or switch to a new tool at this moment. And for us, the number one thing we want to make sure we're doing is solving actual problems the scientific teams have. And the best way to do that is to do as little assumption-making as possible and as much supporting of actual workflows that biotechs are trying to execute on. And so for us, that means looking for Customers that are very open to giving us feedback, that understand that the platform as awesome and as flexible and powerful as it is today. It will only be 10 times better if they actually tell us like, oh, I wish this was a little different or do you have plans for this feature on your roadmap? And so we're very kind of responsive to those things. And it takes a specific type of customer who knows how to interact with software teams to do that in the early days. Of course, if you fast forward the clocks. A few years from now, it becomes much more standard. You know, we can tell people like, this is the feature checklist. This is the price for this feature. Here's the onboarding process. Click here to like sign up. But in the early days, six to 12 months ago, we're being very careful with who we were bringing on so that we were learning from the best scientists about how they wanted their work to happen.
0: Amazing. So it does sound more like these engagements are closer to partnerships than they are to obviously just a traditional transactional relationship, which is amazing, particularly in the early days. Yeah. And it seems like you're continuously solving a lot of people's problems and continuously growing with this great tool that you've basically already running. So now that you have the foundations, I would say, of a strong SaaS play here in the biotech space, what does the future hold? Like, what's the blue sky, greenfield vision? that you guys have for the world or for the biotech space in general? It's a great question. I sometimes struggle to answer this without using cliche terms.
1: So apologies for using a cliche term, but I really do think of Kaleidoscope as kind of uh, an operating system in a way. I personally see just a continuation of the trend we've seen, which is biotechs will increasingly be doing less of the work in-house. People will be much more focused on their core competencies, which means a much higher rate of data changing hands. It also means a much more diverse set of the types of scientists that are working on any meaningful problem. I also think that we will be working towards a world where computation and wet lab bench science will be much closer, and hopefully approach a world where we have these like closed loop systems, where what you're doing in your lab is informing what your computational team is doing, which is you know in turn informing what you're doing in the lab. And so I think. We've seen these trends that these are not kind of new observations that I'm making. People have known about this for you know, the last several years, but it's only been kind of increasing. And so what this, for Kaleidoscope, and in my eyes, means is that companies will increasingly be doing work and generating data that's spread across people, teams, tools, internal, external, etc. But the nature of biotech is that all of the kind of most critical decision-making is happening at the intersections of these things. And so the role I see Kaleidoscope playing is a framework for managing this decision making and tracking so that you can pull all of the most relevant pieces from all these places in one spot and understand how the data you're generating ties to the experiments that you're doing, ties to the milestones that you're chasing. Because biotech as an industry is very milestone driven and, and it's very binary in its outcomes. So it really matters that you hit your next milestone, and then you understand like how you got there and why you're behind or why you're ahead so that you can create that value, that therapeutic, that alternative food product, that alternative energy source, whatever it may be that your R&D team is chasing.
0: So effectively, you guys are being the operating system for all things R&D. Is that the punchy one-liner of vision to the sky there?
1: Yeah, I, I hate that I'm saying that, but yeah, I think I think that's it. I struggle because I think language matters a lot. And I mm-hmm. think terms get used a lot and terms get used loosely, but at the same time you need terms that just resonate with people and like can click with people. So I think like operating sensor for bio is the best way to frame it until there's some other more clever way that I can think of that's maybe not as frequently used.
0: Speaking of terms, Kaleidoscope is a very cool name. How did you come up with it?
1: We get asked that a lot actually, which I think I'm a little surprised by, but it makes sense because it is an interesting word. And I think for us, we wanted something that captured that childlike sense of wonder with the world. All of us had these like very distinct memories as children of like picking up a kaleidoscope and looking through one. And at the same time, we thought it was very evocative of this idea of chaos and messiness. But if you look at it in just the right way or you apply just the right lens or you have just the right tool, it becomes actually a very beautiful pattern. I think it works well as an analogy for how R and D is it's this chaotic mess it's kind of a wonder that things happen and that we're able to cure disease but it's because of this perfect storm of things coming in together just the right way so i think of kaleidoscope as the kind of tool that enables that
0: very beautiful so lastly looking back in retrospect through your journey so far you know what would you say would be the one piece of advice that you wish you've gotten as you kind of gone along in your journey
1: I have a lot of self-awareness, I think. And so I knew going into this journey that I would likely feel this way, but I don't think that it was as apparent to me as it now is, which is that there's always something more you could be doing. And the wins never feel as big to you as they do to people around you. And so I have so many examples, whether it's when we fundraise, whether it's when we close our first customer, whether it's when we, converted our first pilot to a paying customer. Examples where it took a lot of effort to actually stop, pause, and celebrate because we were already thinking about like, okay, what's the like next thing we could be doing? And it was only through conversations with people around me, friends and family, that when I'd share something we achieved and get when I got the reaction of like, oh, that's amazing, like great job, that I would realize like, oh yeah, we actually have come a long way. So I think just something that I wish someone had told me or that I try and tell founders who are just a bit earlier in their journey than me is you're always going to be gunning for something bigger and more in the next step. And so take the time periodically to just stop and kind of celebrate the wind along the way so that you also realize that you're making incredible progress and that you kind of decrease the chance that you'll just burn out.
0: Amazing. Well, Bogdan, thank you very much for chatting with me today. I um, definitely appreciated all your wisdom from the way you developed your team to your product to how you look about the future, and also, again, your personal insights on how it is to basically be an entrepreneur in this space. Again, thank you very much for listening to our audience. This is First in Human, Miguel, signing out. Thanks so much, Miguel. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, and Google.